Welcome to the Pathfinders Collective podcast. This is where we stare down the truth of the climate and ecological crises and develop the courage to create bold new visions and strategies for business in the emerging regenerative economy. If you run a purpose-driven business, work in climate finance or sustainability and want to help change the economy for good, you are in the right place. We speak with world-leading academics, founders, business leaders and activists to map out the terrain of our changing economy in order to create enterprises fit for future generations. Because business as usual is no longer an option. If you're wondering what on earth regeneration is or what a regenerative business is for that matter, head over to thepathfinders.co where you can access our online training, sign up for our newsletter and live events or get in touch for bespoke training and events. In this episode, this is episode three of the Pathfinders Collective podcast, I met with Professor Pierre Friedlingstein, a world-leading climate scientist and the lead author of the IPCC Fifth Assessment Report. Fresh from being at COP26 in Glasgow, Pierre spoke to me about carbon budgets, the problem with economic growth, protests and civil disobedience, what a post-fossil fuel economy might look like, how a 1.7 to 1.8 degree warmer world is actually an optimistic target, as well as discussing the emotional toll of climate change and how all over the world many lines in the sand are already being crossed. Towards the end of our chat, we touch on the inadequacy of the current state of democratic processes and the lack of success of green politics. We look at the need for market incentives to decarbonise the economy. And we talk about how now is the best time for businesses to step up with bold new visions to lead the way to a post-carbon world. Pierre is an incredibly well-accomplished academic, having spent the last 30 years raising the alarm on climate change, whose analysis has enabled us to think about how we might best budget for carbon emissions and help to create a framework that is incredibly useful for scenario planning in order to avoid runaway climate change. So without further hesitation, I introduce you to Professor Pierre Friedlingstein. When you want to explain the scale of the climate situation to a non-academic audience, what data or examples do you draw on first? Uh, well, I guess there's, there's more than one data that I would use. I would first, I mean, refer to what happened so far, which is the observed warming. So since, let's say, the well, 17, 1750 or 1850, whatever, transitional time, we've been emitting CO2 into the, into the atmosphere. The CO2 concentration went up. It increased by 50% uh, already since 1750. And the warming, which is, well, the, the result of this increase in greenhouse gas concentration, not just CO2, but mainly CO2, is more than one degree now. It's 1.1, 1, 1. 1.2 degrees, and warmer than the pre-industrial. So this is what, what happened so far, and we can also project what would happen in the future, uh, depending, of course, on future emissions of CO2 and other greenhouse gases. If we keep emitting at the same rate, the same amount of CO2 being injected into the atmosphere every single year, I mean, in well, about 10 years, we would be at 1.5 degrees. In about 20, 25, 30 years, we would be, we will be, we be reaching two, I mean, two degrees of warming. So the warming will continue and will in, uh, in intensify as long as we continue to emit, well, CO2 and other gases into the atmosphere. The only way to stop additional warming is to bring emissions down to zero. So just then when you mentioned um, 10 years for 1.5, does that mean in order to stay within 1.5 
degrees of average average global temperature warming, we need to decarbonize the economy in 10 years? Well, yes and no. I mean, so we have 10 years as current rate emissions. So if I mean, I mean, mathematically, it means if you emit the same amount for 10 years, then you reach 1.5. So if you're a bit smarter than this and you start reducing now, yet you can you can draw a line and the, the line needs to go, to, I mean, down to zero. And then, of course, you, got, you get 20 years between 100% today and 0% in 20 years. I mean, the, the sum of this triangle, if you see what I mean, this, this is the same as the rectangle, which is the full amount, 100%, but only for 10 years. So, yeah, we have 20 years to, to, to take emissions down to zero, essentially. Okay. And um, in recent years, COVID aside maybe or maybe you want to talk about that what has been the general trend in terms of our emissions are they going up are they stabilizing are they going down what's the picture so the picture is that the, the i mean as you said COVID, covid aside emission went up so not as fast as they used to uh in the i mean first decade of the century i mean 20 i mean i mean to, to 2010 the rate of increase of CO2 emission was, I mean, more like, I mean, two, three percent per year. And now it's less, less than one percent. It's like about one percent per year increase. So every single year we are emitting more CO2 than before, but the rate of increase is slightly slower than it used to be. So you could say we are slowly getting into like a plateau and uh, well, potentially, hopefully, I mean, descending and reducing emissions, which is not happening yet. It happened last year because of COVID. Emission went down by about 5%, a bit more than 5%. But the bad news is they went back pretty much where they were in 2021 when the global economy, I mean, tried to recover from the COVID crisis. So if we were to go along those lines, as you said earlier, about phasing um, our way to a, a zero carbon economy, and we wanted to hit one and a half degrees within 20 years, what sort of reductions would we need year on year? Obviously it could be, you know, it doesn't have to be uniform. It could be all over the place, but just in terms of like a, a marker. So glo globally, the marker is like, I mean, we emit, I mean, 40 billion uh, tons of CO2 per year uh, on the average. Uh, if you want to bring this to zero in 20 years, you have to reduce by well, 1.5 to 2 billion tons per year. So, yeah, the rate of decline is quite significant. It's like a few, a few percent per year, every single year between now and, well, let's say 20, 2045 or something. The reduction you need to apply every single year globally is about the same amplitude as the one we observed during the COVID crisis to give you a sense of the scale. Of course, we don't want to happen for the same reason. And it would, I mean, no one wants to, to lock down the entire population for 10 years. But I mean, the reduction in, I mean, energy demand and CO2 emissions has to be similar to what we had during COVID. Everything, every, every yeah. Of course, you don't want I mean, to achieve this by, I mean, re reducing the economy or affecting the economy, I mean, neg negatively every single year until you bring down the economy to zero, you still want to have like a growing economy or at least a constant economy or potentially growing with less CO2 emissions. So the old challenge is to try to separate the trends in the, the trend in the economy from the trend in the CO2 emissions, which is what we call decarbonization of the economy. 
Right. So the the, decoup the decoupling of economic growth and CO2 emissions. Do you think that's a, a worthy target? I mean, is climate change not a symptom of um, a root cause of our problem being economic growth? If we have a, an economy that makes it um, more profitable to cut down trees than to keep them, um, and if we have an economy that has this linear extractive relationship with the planet, um, is it wise to continue to pursue economic growth? Well, I mean, this, this, I mean, clearly the reason why we, we, we are where we are now, I mean, the, I mean, the, the economy of the world has been developed and built on fossil fuel energy and use of fossil fuel because it was available, it was cheaper. And I mean, the entire economy, I mean, developed thanks to fossil fuels. So, that doesn't mean that there is no alternative and you 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 why i don't see why we can't have an economy which is i mean primarily building on renewable energies and if you have renewable energy i'm providing the energy which is needed i mean it 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 it, it, it would work i mean of course i mean you still want to I mean, to assess how much we need, so we could reduce, which is essentially being more efficient. So we, I'm, not, I'm not sure we need that much energy, especially in developed countries. We are probably well above what we actually need, and we could probably live, like, well, have the same kind of, like, I mean, standard of living with, I mean, less energy being used, being more efficient. Uh, then you can also, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, be more efficient in recycling and reusing and keeping things for longer. So all of these things don't affect the economy in the same way, but they also help to reduce, I mean, the, the amount of energy you need, which means the emissions. And then of course, we still need a lot of energy, potentially more if we move from, I mean, fossil fuel to electricity and all, if all cars are driven by electricity, you will need more electricity. This is, that's obvious. So there will be an increased need of energy from electricity, which has to come from, again, low carbon uh, sources. It has to be renewable, it could be nuclear, it could be hydro, it could be hydrogen as well. I mean, all of this has, be, has to be combined. So I'm not saying the economy has to collapse to, help, to, to save us, but from a climate change point of view, the economy has to decouple drastically from the, uh, the the carbon economy and the fossil fuel economy. That's for sure. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I wasn't potentially suggesting that we collapse the economy, but more tran transition from our current economy to what is ostensibly a completely different economy that's you know, got a different um, energy um, provision behind it um, and potentially has a different purpose to it. I mean, the current economy that we've got at the moment has growth as its imperative due to the aftermath of the Second World War. We needed the economy to grow quickly to rebuild. It's just nobody changed the, the cassette tape in the, in the economy um, to say, well, we need to have a, a different purpose. But I mean, now, if ever, we needed a different purpose for our economy, decarbonizing in order to combat climate change seems like a good purpose. I, I, I fully agree, but at the same time, I mean, I mean we, we remind the, the first question we, I mean, we discussed, which is how much time we have. And the, the answer is we don't have much time. We don't have much time. We have like 10 years at the current rate, maybe 20 years if you are super efficient. And, and beyond that, I mean, it's not the end of the world, but we will be breaching 1.5. So it will be, the warming and the impact will be larger. So, I mean, given that time, I mean, I'm more like pragmatic, which is we have to do with what we have. 
And the tools we have is the current economy, is the system that we have, which is a capitalist system. That's what we have. We have to deal with it. If we want to replace everything, yeah, why not? But is it going to happen in the next 10 years, given the current system we have, the current I mean, political system and election we have in these countries? Uh, I say with doubt. So I'm more like pragmatic. If we want to solve the climate crisis, we have to do it with what the tools we have now and try the best we can. And then we can come back to the discussion later and see what we can do. As, um, I was having a conversation with someone the other day who had been in communication with Noam Chomsky. And Noam Chomsky's advice to Extinction Rebellion was exactly what you just said, which was, we don't have time to completely destroy the system and create a whole new system. We have to work with what's in front of us. I fully um, agree. I'm, I'm glad which, we agree. <laughs> yeah, you and Noam Chomsky on the same page, definitely. Um, and that's something that we've been talking about in the Pathfinders Collective, actually, which is this idea of, can we make the greening of capitalism profitable? Because in doing so, we're using the, the mechanisms of the capitalist structures in front of us in order to create profitable enterprises from decarbonization itself. Um, again, just using what's in front of us as, and, and seeing what energy and enthusiasm we can use these goals. Okay, so next question I want to ask you uh, is, what is the ideal trajectory then? So we just talked about, you know, if we are, we talked about the triangle, we talked about the rectangle in terms of um, imagining those emissions. So what does the ideal trajectory for weaning ourselves off of fossil fuels look like? And how quickly do we need to do it? Well, I, I suspect something not too far from the linear trajectory is the optimal. I mean, of course, the rectangle is the worst uh, option because it's, we, we do nothing for 10 years and then overnight you, do, you turn off the lights everywhere. So this is, not gonna, this is not going to happen. It's not realistic. It's not something you want. So you want to start reducing now. And you probably won't be totally linear because I guess, I mean, there are so low hanging fruit that you can, I mean, address, I mean, rights straight away. And maybe like in the near term, I mean, the decline will be slightly faster. And then you have like the long tail of the hard to reduce emissions for these sectors where we don't have a clue yet how to do it properly and globally. I mean, aviation is one example, agriculture is another example. I mean, we can hardly have like a sustainable agriculture worldwide that doesn't emit methane or N2O. So we'll have to find solutions or we'll have to come with potentially negative emissions in some sectors to compensate for other sectors. So there will be like a long tail where things will be harder and harder. But I mean, the first step that could be implemented, I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't see any reason why, I mean, we have to delay. I mean, insulation of homes, for example, in the UK, it's a no brainer. I mean, I mean, electrification of, 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 uh, of all transport, or, again, it's a no brainer. It's an investment. It costs a lot of money to do it at, 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 the, at the scale of, well, a country like the UK. And I mean, even more at the scale of the world, but we have the tools. So just to go back to that, there, you said, um, the insulating of the British homes is a no brainer. Could you just talk a little bit more about that? Why is insulating homes in Britain such a no brainer? Well, because you, well, you, you reduce your energy bill. So, I mean, it costs less for, uh, the householders. Uh, you emit less CO2 or greenhouse gas, uh, because you reduce your energy consumptions. So, I mean, it's a win-win 
for well, the only the only one who would and it also creates jobs because you'll have to do it at a massive scale in the next ten years. So with the loser, there's no loser except, of course, the government has to do it and to provide the funding and help people to do it, especially the low-income households. They have to be helped. I mean, to to do the transition and to do the full insulation of their house and then double glazing and everything because it will cost money and they have to get support to do it. So they have to do have to you have to find some mechanisms of I mean, no taxing, no tax or subsidies to do it. But otherwise, I mean, everybody's winning. So, um, have you been paying much attention to the Insulate Britain campaign recently? And what do you think about that? Well. It's a bit like XR, except for a billion. I mean, they, I, I, they have my sympathy, but I think the ways they do it is wrong because they get everyone against them. And it could be, I mean, at the end, for insulate Britain, it could be totally, totally counterproductive because I could imagine the government deciding, okay, we can't just do it now because if we do it, it shows that we actually agreed with them and, I mean, respond to the demonstrations and are scared of whatever. And so I could, yeah, you might just delay the action from the government because they, just, they, they don't want to be looking like they are responding to the threats. So I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure it's, so it's a good strategy to, well, to get some I mean, the, the people on the street like against your, your cause because you just obstruct them. and. Even if they have some sympathy, I mean, it just they're stuck like in a traffic jam for five hours because of you, and they get mad. I was um, I've been thinking about this recently, actually. Um, the the Insulate Britain movement makes reference to um, the Freedom Riders of the civil rights movement, and also the Gandhian movement and the Salt Marches, both of whom were able to perform civil disobedience in such a way that the law that they were breaking just seemed absurd. So in the salt marches, taking your own salt from your own country and refusing to pay a tax on it. It doesn't really hurt anybody. Um, and it's quite absurd. So it, you can see why people get behind it. Or the Freedom Riders sitting on a bus. Again, it's, it's absurd. Blocking a road, on the other hand, is not so simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or blocking, yeah, blocking an airport or a road. Yeah. We don't have an equivalent yet of those ridiculous or absurd laws um, that can be easily broken in protest. Um, and without those, I suppose people are, are having to disrupt um, in order to try and get some sort of purchase. I worry in a way that if the laws become more draconian against protest, then it might become possible to have absurd laws to break rather than having to block motorways and so on like that. But um, yeah, what's your feeling at the moment, just in general, about the protest movement? So you, you mentioned Extinction Rebellion. We just mentioned Insulate Britain. I mean, given the timescales that we've got um, and the amount of um, reduction in, in emissions that we need and to date the, yeah, the lack of action, where do you um, see any sort of hope in terms of uh, the citizens of countries or you know activists or any kind of particular movement or ngo where do you look for for hope well i think we need we need all of all of the above i mean i'm, I'm we need i mean civil movements i mean we need demonstrations and i um i've been always amazed by i mean the lack of i mean demonstration in the, in the uk in general 
and compare what well, I'm coming from France, where people like on the on the street for any 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 reason, like it's, it's, it becomes like a hobby almost. And in the UK, I mean, I mean, things happen and people just don't go on the street and just accept and they face it. So I mean, the, the XR and even in Britain, in a sense, I'm quite relieved to say, well, at least something is happening and, and uh, people are just reacting. But at the same time, I mean. Yeah, people have to be prepared that this is this will take long a long, a long time. It's not just like a kind of like well, this was the thing to do in 2020, and then in 2021 we we move to something else like another cause. I mean the cause of I mean the climate cause. I mean I've been working for on on, on climate science for like 30 years with I mean well little little success in terms of I mean seeing the CO2 emission going down or climate changing being reduced. So I mean yeah, people have to be prepare that I mean it's a long fight and we shouldn't stop but it won't happen overnight and I mean you've seen in Glasgow I mean the, the, the outcome of the COP is like well for some people it's positive so other people say it's extremely negative and really disappointing and my take is it's somewhere in between okay it could be better it could have been much much worse and we have we just have to continue and to carry on. To just go back you said you've been working on climate science for 30 years and I know that your your, your background is mathematics um, were you always involved in climate or was there something that happened where you decided to apply your, um, your mathematics to climate? So well, my, so, well, my background is, is, is not mathematics in, in initially, it's uh, engineering. So I got, I got a degree in engineering from, from Belgium and when I was, I mean, halfway through my degree, I kind of like realized, well, I, should, I don't really want to become an engineer. And I was more interested in the science element of the of the engineering, the the the, the application and the, the engineering aspect. So I moved into I mean I mean I mean geology, earth science, and mining engineer, and all of these things, which is it's kind of like it's interesting to see that I, I was I was trained as a mining engineer, and I ended up I mean working on climate change and everything like which like pretty much everything against mining. But anyway, so that was my 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 training initially, and then I moved from there into earth science and then into, well, I mean, paleocarbon and deep sediments and global carbon cycle and then climate and carbon interactions. So, yeah, I guess like I kind of like slowly moved from yeah, engineering, earth science into carbon and climate. Was that purely by just following your interests or luck or was there any... Um... It's always it's always a bit of both. It's, it's, it's interest and, and luck being at the right place at the right time and meeting the right people that say, well, actually, if you want to do this, you can you can work with me on a PhD, you can submit something, and then I submit a, a PhD uh, application, and it got successful, and I started working on the global carbon cycle. And then I met other people during, I mean, I mean, I mean workshops and meetings, and they invite me to give seminars, and so you, you just develop like this. So it's, yeah, I mean, I was highly interested in what I was doing, but it's always, it's, it's I think it's, there's a large element of luck in, 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 in the process as always. Okay, so jumping back to the questions. Um, what does a post fossil fuel world look like to you? And do you think that we've, we've got the technologies already or are they yet to be created? <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. So I don't know for sure. I mean, for in some sectors, I mean, as, as we briefly discussed in some sectors, I think we, we do know how to do it. But there's always a difference between do it in one region or one country or all country across the world, which is sometimes much more ambitious. 
So, I mean, wind farms, I mean, Scotland, they have wind farms and they produ it produce like a large amount of electricity in Scotland. I think, I mean, last year it was 95% of, I mean, electricity in Scotland was renewable. So that's, that's, that's something which is, I mean, clearly do doable on all, I mean, the, 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 the facet of the, of the Atlantic Ocean, you can do it. There's lots of winds in other places in the world. There's no so much, there's no much wind. Then you've got electricity that you can get for uh, harvest from, so, um, from solar energy, of course. Again, it works in some places. I mean, Southern Europe, for example, not Northern Europe. None of these is you can, you can store for long time. So we don't have the capacity to store. I mean, batteries is still something that we are, well, we've been working, well, not me, but some people have been working on like, I mean, long-term battery storage and it's still a, a key problem. I mean, electricity transport across continents is still complicated because you are, you, you've got loss of, 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 uh, of electricity along the way. Uh, so you need like superconductors, which again have been like in development for like 30 years with no success so far. So we are still missing bits to make sure that, I mean, you can actually produce any kind of electricity anywhere and use it anywhere else in any time. So there will be needs for something in between. Uh, there's lots of discussion about nuclear energy, of course, as well. For example, like in France, they have, um, they, are high, they have, like, they have, they are highly, uh, uh, rely on the nuclear for electricity. Is it something you want to continue in the next, I mean, 10 years, 50 years? I mean, this is something, is it applicable worldwide in every single country in the world? Do you want every single country having, I mean, nuclear energy and capability to develop um, nuclear plants and potentially also nuclear warheads? We don't know. It's, it's getting very complicated. So I wouldn't say we have all the technologies now. And especially uh, we haven't discussed, I mean, carbon capture and storage. If you want to remove some CO2 from the atmosphere because you have to, because you have other sources, we don't have the technologies either. So I wouldn't say, yes, we have all technologies, but I'm with, I think we have enough to reduce potentially by 50% in the next 10 years with what we have. How, how do you feel about the, the carbon capture storage? This idea that um, in the IPCC reports, there's this assumption that these technologies will be invented at some point and they're included in calculations at present. What do you think about that? <laughs> it's. It's, it's a very hot, I mean, topic at the moment. And as, as you know, I mean, I mean, all this discussion about net zero and should we do net zero or should we do zero? And is, are these distractions from doing what has to be done, which is reducing emissions? And so I guess my take is we shouldn't replace mitigation of emission by carbon captures. So what has to be done first is to reduce emission being more efficient, replacing fossil fuel by renewable and so on, as we discussed, this has to come first. At some point in the future, we will hit the wall where for some sources, as I mentioned earlier, for some sources and some sectors, there is no way. We, If you want to keep flying across the world, or we can decide we, we won't fly across the world, but if you want to keep flying across the world, at the moment, we don't have a choice. It has to be on fuel. And I mean, by synthetic fuel, again, it doesn't exist yet at the scale which would be needed. So at the moment, you will limit you to if you fly. So you will need, I mean, you, you'll need negative emission. You'll need to compensate with some carbon capture and storage. Also, 
I mentioned agriculture. Agriculture is the same problem. I mean, if rice paddies emits methane. Either we'll, we, we have a world with no rice in the future or we have a world with rice and methane emissions. I don't see at the moment any alternative. And I suspect it will be with, with some rice because, I mean, large fraction of the population in the world is eating rice. It's the main uh, source of uh, cereals in, in, in Asia. And that's the way it is. And you can't change it. So we will have methane emissions. So you'll, have, you'll need negative emissions. That, that's, uh, to me, it's almost guaranteed. But it shouldn't be used now as a way to uh, not uh, mitigate emissions. And also, so, so sorry, there's one more thing I, I want to mention. If, if you stop emitting CO2 or another greenhouse gas now, at best the, the temperature stays what it is because the CO2 concentration goes down and the temperature kind of like stabilize because of the long inertia in the climate system, mainly because of the ocean. So there's no more warming if you stop CO2 emissions but there's actually no cooling. So if we at some point want to cool the planet, the only way to cool the planet is to artificially remove the CO2 we put in the, in the atmosphere in the first place. You say artificially, but could it also be done through natural processes like it? Yes, if we let the natural things like the ocean and the land operate, that's what, that's what I meant. So if you stop emitting CO2 today, assume tonight, you, we stop emitting CO2 and from tomorrow there's no more emissions, the CO2 concentration will, slight, will, will start decreasing in the atmosphere because the land and the ocean are still removing CO2, as they do now. They take about 50% of the emissions at the moment, so they will still remove the CO2. They will be less and less efficient in the long term because of the concentration going down, and the concentration of CO2 is the driver of the, the, the sink. There's an ocean sink because the CO2 in the atmosphere is larger than the CO2 in the ocean. And this is why the CO2 is taken by the ocean. If the CO2 in the atmosphere is reducing, this sink will reduce as well. And eventually it will reach zero. And it will reach zero in like 1,000 years, essentially, right? And, and, and along the way, the CO2 will go down slowly. But the temperature will not go down as the CO2 does because of the long inertia in the ocean system. So if if you could stabilize the CO2 concentration, the, 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 the system will continue to warm for a long time. So if you reduce the concentration of the CO2 naturally, then the temperature will stabilize, essentially. It's a kind of compensation between the decline of the CO2 in the atmosphere and the lag in the ocean response to the current warming. So, yeah, the CO2 will go down if you, with natural things, but it won't go down fast enough to cool the planet. If you want to cool the planet, you have to reduce the CO2 concentration faster than natural. Okay. Um, with that in mind, what do you think are the likely amounts of, of warming that we're going to see, uh, um, say, between now and, and 2050? We're already at 1.1, and as you mentioned, there's already a lag in the system. So when I say most likely, um, I, that's open to your interpretation of that. Um, you don't necessarily have to keep your professional hat on, but just in terms of like, yeah, you just looking at the world around you, looking at the political situations, looking at the uh, sort of um, economic situations and so on. Um, what are you not planning for, but what are you expecting? What's most likely the amount of warming that we'll see between now and 2050? It's, it's extremely hard because I don't want to, I mean, to, to, to be like too optimistic or too, negative, uh, too pessimistic. I mean, if you look at the outcome of the COP, I mean, the best 
the more op the most optimistic estimate from the outcome of the COP is something like around 1.7, 1.8 degree warming by the end of the century, if everything goes right, which means is if every single pledge from every country in the world is fully, fully implemented, and if they if they all go, I mean, towards zero by, I mean, well, 2050, 2060, 2070 for India, whatever. But if they all go to zero within this, I mean, time frame, or they follow like a really, really, I mean, a declining path in, 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 in the second half of the century, then we can keep warming below two degrees. 1.7, 1.8 is what they say. This is the most op optimistic scenario at the moment. So my take would be, well, it's unlikely to happen because not every single country will do it and therefore the warming will be larger than, than maybe two degrees. But on the other hand, you say, well, actually, this is just a current pledge now from Glasgow 26 in 2021. In 10, in 10 years' time, as we discussed before, when the, the economy will work on renewable as well, and they, they will realize actually they will invest and make money on, on renewable, and they might develop even faster. So countries that are now a bit reluctant to have like very, very ambitious pledges as we speak now, because they still, they still rely massively on fossil fuel, they might not be in the same position in, in, in 10 or 15 years. So they might become more ambitious because they, they, they will actually see, well, actually, this is a way for us to be winning as well, because we'll be developing, I mean, renewable, we'll be selling renewable across the world. And I mean, I could see China being, I mean, the world leader in renewable energy in, in, in 10 years' time. And I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I mean, 20 years ago, I was feel, I, I felt okay. Well, I mean, the Europe can do it, and Europe can be the leader in in green in green technologies. I'm not convinced anymore. But so the current pledge is maybe it's not the best we can do. And in 10 years' time, the, the, this country will be back to say actually we can do much more. And maybe we'll be, we'll be missing 1.5, but maybe we'll be between 1.5, 1.7. I don't know. So. Yeah, I, I'm sorry, I don't really answer your question, but I, I, I would say by 2050, if you are like around 1.5 by 2050, with, clear, with very clear indication that the emissions are going down, we won't be like in such a bad position. So what does a, what does a 1.5 degree warmer world look like? Because I have heard some people say that that global temperature um, is a global temperature, and that when you actually uh, make a distinction between um, land and sea, that the land temperature will actually be a lot more than 1.5. It could. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, the land, the land temperature is like around 1.5 today. Globally, I mean the one, I mean the 1.1.2. I mean, warming that we had in 2020 is again a global value, with less warming over the ocean and more warming, more more warming over the lands. So we, I think we are not far from 1.5 on, on the land, and, pro and we are all well, already above 1.5 if you look in the high latitude over land. So yeah, it's a global number, which has like very, I mean, large regional, I mean, uh, variations. So a global 1.5 will mean probably like something like around two over land and maybe like more than two in, in, in the Arctic. That's, that's obvious. But nevertheless, I mean, this is what IPCC, I mean, uh, assessed in the special report on 1.5, and they compare 1.5 in two degrees globally. I mean, accounting for these regional, I mean, the, the, the disparities, and 
I mean, as you would expect, I mean, a 1.5 wall is better than two degree wall because, I mean, there's less impact. I mean, there's less, well, obviously there's less warming. There's less, I mean, change in precipitation with, I mean, some, pl some places are becoming more arid and some places with like more intense precipitation. Also extremes. I mean, the, the intensity of extremes is increasing with warming as well. And so, you know, one, 1.5 degree volt, I mean, the, the intensity of the extremes is not as large as in two degrees. Also, acidification keep increasing with some increasing CO2 in climate. And again, so all the impacts will, they don't scale linearly, but it's, it's not, it's not exponential either. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's more severe at two degrees than 1.5. We know it, but 1.7 is still better than two, even if it's not as good as 1.5. So it's, we, do, we shouldn't see 1.5 as like a cliff hedge where everything before 1.5 is great and everything after 1.5 is just like the end of the world. And we've seen that, I mean, even before 1.5 is not great. I mean, we had like massive extremes and heat wave in, in Canada and I mean, floods in, in Western Europe last, last, last summer. So we are already like in a territory which is not really safe anymore. Hmm. What does a, what does a 1.5 degree global average increase world by 2050 look like in terms of impacts? Because one of the things that I'm quite concerned about is food security. Um, impacts of warming on, on crop production or crop failure, potential heat domes or the impacts of drought or of flood, like the, the two extremes. What does a 1.5 degree world look like? What might some of those impacts be? Well, I mean, it's, I mean as, as I said, I mean, more, yeah, we, more, more extremes, more than today. So more droughts. Uh, in many regions, I mean, I mean, in, well, in, in, in dry, uh, regions, uh, at the moment, you'll have more droughts, uh, more summer droughts, more heat waves, like, like the one we, 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 we had recently as well, uh, again. Uh, I mean, I can't give you the numbers because I don't have like the, the IPCC special report in front of me. You know, I, I don't want to quote a number which is wrong. So I can't tell you, like, I mean, the, the percent, percentage increase, you have to go back to the report and look at the numbers. I mean, it's, it's, it's in there. And it's in, also in the new, I mean, assessment for Mohi One, which came out in, in August. I mean, they reassess, I mean, the, the change in extreme, for example, I mean, present day 1.52 degrees and three, and three degrees. And you, you clearly see the increase, I mean, the increase of risk and probability of extreme events, uh, occurring more and more often when you, when you, when you have an increased warming. So 1.5 is, more than more than today already, in terms of extreme and risk and impact. Yeah, and as you mentioned, agriculture, of course, is one key uh, sector where this will have like large impacts. So yeah, one of the things that that worries me quite a lot about the potential futures is around food security. And I've got two young children, and I think, what's the world going to look like? Yeah, in twenty fifty, um, am I right to worry? Yes, yes, we sh we should all worry. And yeah, yeah. And I would say, I mean, yeah, maybe, I mean, I mean, England is not the worst place to be in terms of, I mean, climate impact because I mean, food security might still be okay. I mean, compared to Africa where, I mean, we expect the warming to be, I mean, I mean, larger in, in, in intensity and water supply being scarce already in, at the moment. Uh, so the more water availability in many regions in Africa will become like a major issue in, in, in the, in the next 30, 50 years, probably more than in the UK. So 
but that doesn't mean it's 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 okay for us because of course i mean we live like in a global system and there will there will be impacts if i mean if there is like i mean massive crisis and food crisis or water crisis in in many continents or subcontinents and with this impact across the world um you mentioned that africa bearing a lot of the brunt of the uh, of the impacts of, of temperature increase would be worse there um and i know after cop 26 there was a lot of discussion from the uh, countries from the global south feeling particularly hard done by from the agreement that was reached in the sense that had they not agreed to it it would have derailed the whole process but in agreeing to it they've kind of had to accept the fact that richer nations in the north are not as willing to um, transition away from fossil fuels as fast as people may have hoped what do you believe to be the real reason why um, we see such uh, reluctance to move away from fossil fuels because we because we we've been relying on fossil fuel for 150 years so it's quite hard to commit uh to to, to change also we all have different histories i mean i mean i mean i mean while well, uk eu us have been dominant and emitting more so the co2 we we see in the atmosphere at the moment uh, so they have an historical responsibility. I mean, we developed essentially, I mean, thanks to, well, fossil fuels and, I mean, using resources from everywhere in the world. Uh, and now you see there's a bit of a change and in, 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 in the most developed countries, they can see, okay, well, now we can reduce and we need to reduce. They are willing to reduce on coal. There was lots of discussion about coal because coal is the one uh, source that we do reduce already in Europe and in the US. We don't reduce oil yet. We don't reduce gas yet, which is why only coal has been mentioned in the agreement at the COP. Not there's no agreement on oil and gas because even us, we won't commit to reduce oil and, oil and gas yet because we, we don't know how to do it and we're not sure we can do it soon enough. So there was a lot, there was a lot of blame after the COP like blame on India and China for, I mean, just phasing down coal as opposed to phasing out coal. But you have to remember that this is the first time coal is actually appearing in the text and oil and gas are still not appearing in the text. So, yeah, yeah, it, it, it's a complex system because you need all the countries to be on board and agreed and they have all different trajectories, past trajectories and future trajectory. I mean, you can't expect India to reduce emissions, I mean, straight away. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a huge economy. It's a, it's, a, it's a huge population of more than one billion people. They're still emitting much, much less CO2 than we do per, per, per capita. I mean, China is more or less at the same level as Europe in terms of per capita emission. Of course, they emit more to total, total because it's just it's a larger it's a larger population. But per capita, it's still much much less, and all of these are still well, it's at least a factor of two. I mean, lower than the U.S. in terms of per capita emission. So, the Af Africa is at the end of the spectrum. I mean, the per capita emission is like are tiny compared to ours. So, you can't you cannot assume that Africa cannot develop. They have to develop, they have to have a growing economy and GDP, which is, well, hopefully comparable to GDPs of developed countries in the next 30 years, 50 years, or even less, even before. It has to be done with less carbon use that we did. But yeah, it won't, it won't happen magically. It will happen only if there is massive financial support 
again from the one who gained from this system for the last 150 years. Yeah, equity and justice. Equity, yeah, yeah it has to be, it has to be, yeah, even within, 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 within the, within the a country. I mean, you see what happened with, in France with the, the yellow, the yellow jacket, like a few years ago. It was about equity as well. So even within the UK or within the Europe, I mean, across the population, equity is key. A lot of the discussion around COP26 um, revolved around oil and gas lobbies and just the number of people that they sent there. Um, and there's a lot of discussion around yeah, phasing out fossil fuels, the, the, the inertia of the fossil fuel economy, the role of um, oil and gas companies in global politics and so on. But I think it's important to note also that it's not just the oil and gas companies. There are petro states, um, states whose, whose wealth is they are essentially an oil company. Um, that's probably one of the reasons why when they all meet to discuss, it's like saying, do you want us to take away all your wealth? <laughs> and then willingly going, yeah, sure, have it, take it. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, of course, of course. How do we get rich countries to to abandon large parts of their wealth? How do we get the economy to change? How do we? So much of it comes down to belief, um, and and what you what people believe in, which for me is both um, empowering because it means that essentially to avert climate catastrophe, we need people to change their minds, which doesn't sound so bad. At the same time, getting people to change their minds seems ridiculously difficult. Um, because of this cultural inertia. So when we're sat here with a position where we know that the, the that there's going to be a huge diaspora of people um, around the world as a, as a result of climate impacts, and we know that we are breaching planetary boundaries and we are underserving um, social and global equity, we seem completely trapped in this frame of reference, this way of seeing the world. Um, but I'd argue that potentially this way of seeing this world, the, this frame of reference of a linear extractive economy is fundamentally flawed. And yes, it is the one that we have in front of us, but it seems to be completely ignorant of our relationship with nature. Um, it seems to be completely ignorant of the way that natural systems operate um, and nature's own intelligence. Um, the idea that we could have an infinitely growing economy within a finite planet seems to me to be completely absurd. Yeah, yeah. Um, at, at what point in the, as this plays out, do we need to be having these sorts of conversations more often about what do we believe in? What is the economy for? What are we playing at? Um, is this not a wake up call to say the thinking that has served us so incredibly well for so long? hits points at scale where it ceases to provide the same benefits that it used to. No, you're entirely right. I mean, I mean, yeah, there's been lots, lots of, I mean, discussions and research and on, on, on these topics. And well, I, obviously I don't have like a definite, definite answer, but I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, the, the, the value of nature is totally, well, irrelevant in, in this world, in, in general. I mean, someone, I forgot who said, I mean, uh, a tree has only value when it's when it's chopped down and and sold as 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 wood product. Otherwise, like a forest has no value. So now it's kind of like it's slowly getting different because we can see the I mean uh, nature-based solution preserving ecosystems. We can we start seeing values in 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 ecosystems, but it's not quantified yet. 
it's not like the value is not in dollars. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, the car carbon tax and carbon credit is potentially one of the way to go, which is we're still within the system to help to make sure that, I mean, if you're using CO2, if you produce CO2, you'll have to pay for it and you have to pay much, but more than what we do now, which is almost zero. And that would mean that some ways of travel, for example, would become prohibitive and other ways will be extremely cheap and it would, I mean, reverse the balance between, for example, I'm flying and taking a train, which is totally absurd in, in, at the moment in this world. I mean, you can fly across the world for like 50, 50 quid. And if you take a train to London, you pay 200 quid. So it doesn't make any sense. It, it, it doesn't reflect the actual cost of anything. It just, it's, it's, I don't know, it's totally artificial. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a case for many, many systems in this, in this world because it's just based on demand and offer and, or lobby or I don't know. So yeah, all of this has, has to change. And you are right. It is a wake up call. It's, Somehow I wonder why is it coming so late? Because I mean I've been involved in IPCC for many years. I mean, and this ass assessment for IPCC is the sixth one, so we've done this like five times already, every five years. So we start in 1990. So what is what does it take like 30 years for people to wake up? So I'm glad they do wake up, but it's kind of like you wish. Well, if we had the same kind of movement of reaction from everyone. 20 years ago, we wouldn't be here anymore and we would potentially, we would be here discussing together because it wouldn't be an issue. So do you ever, there is lots, do you, do you ever feel like you're going crazy? I mean, knowing what, you know, having been around for so, <laughs> you know, it, looking at this for so long, how, how does it, yeah. How do you feel about it? Like on a, on a personal emotional level, how does this whole situation make you feel? It's mixed, mixed feelings is, is the short answer. Yeah. Mixed feelings. I'm, I'm optimistic by nature. So I'm kind of hoping that eventually we will avoid the worst. We, which maybe doesn't sound so optimistic, but yeah, we, we can still avoid like large level of warming. I'm convinced we can do it. Uh, I hope, I'm hoping it will happen, but it's still, it is frustrating. I mean, to see that, I mean, no matter how much effort you put in, how much involvement you have in IPCC, how much IPCC is prominent and not just IPCC, many, many organizations across the world come to the same conclusion, make the same statements and express it. We wrote, I mean, statements, letters to MPs, to prime ministers, petitions, everything for the last, I mean, at least 10, 15 years in my case, being, I mean, I'm largely involved and you still see yeah, no, no clear, well, lots of signals, but no, no actual, well, evidence. When you look at the atmosphere, the CO2 is still going up. As we discussed briefly, I mean, the CO2 emissions went up, I mean, straight after the pandemic, like they were before. So, yeah, we are still in the same, in the same mess. So this is frustrating and quite depressing, but I'm still kind of hoping that we can still turn it around. Do you, do you have children? Yes, two. Yeah, How old yeah. are they? Uh, 18 and 14. And how do they feel about it? Well, I, well, I have, well, having, having both parents working on the, on, on yeah. the fields, of course, they, they, must... They, know, they, they must know, they do, they know about it. Uh, I don't know. I mean, they are not overly worried, I would say. They seem relatively optimistic and enthusiastic about their life and their future. They don't worry too much. I mean, they are aware, 
so my eldest son is 18 now. He's the one who came back home like a while ago saying, okay, we can't eat beef anymore. Because myself, I mean, being, well, I'm a climate scientist, but I love my beef still. So, uh, and we, we had meat and he said, no, no, we can't have meat anymore, or at least no beef. Or if we have meat, it has to be, I mean, free range and, I mean, and not, not, not massive production of whatever. So, yeah, so we, we make this, that, that, that shift a while ago. And yeah, this, so yeah, they are aware, they, but I wouldn't say they are worried about it. Maybe they should be more. Some, sometimes, sometimes I wish, I mean, it's bizarre, you know, no, no, none of my kids are like, I mean, like, like Greta or, I mean, or any of these climate activists who have, for them, it's like, it's like life, life or death kind of situation. No, my kids are not like that. It's just like, yeah, we'll see. From, from what you, from what you know, from what you do, um, for the, the potential scenarios that you see in the, in the data, um, that you observe, um, yeah, how does that, how does that play out in terms of you think about your children's future and then their children and so on? Um, what do you think is ahead for us? Because I often feel quite anxious about the future. I feel quite anxious about my children. So I've got a five-year-old and a three-year-old. Um, and I do worry about what world they're inheriting. Um, and this is one of the things I wanted to ask you about, which is personal tipping points. So I've heard about, you know, climate tipping points. Um, I've even heard from Tim Lenton at Exeter University as well about positive tipping points. Yeah, yeah, which is, yeah. The, the yeah, and I, yeah, I started thinking recently about personal tipping points um, because it can feel very, um, like a huge lack of control about any of this um, and a lack of being heard or having any kind of agency. But if we were to have particular tipping points either personally or within a community or you know collectively to say okay well once we hit this many parts per million or once we hit this amount of temperature increase we know that this is then going to happen and therefore we might be able to write some lines in the sand informed by people such as yourself that say okay well these are the lines that we cannot cross because if we do then we know for a fact um that terrible outcomes will, will follow. Or likewise, these lines of the sand, once we hit that point, we know that we're going to be okay. And I was wondering if you could, you know, give me any guidance on those. Um, and I'll be cheeky enough to ask at what point do you think there's a line in the sand that says the only way that we're going to change this is through some sort of revolutionary act. <laughs> okay, so from a climate point of view, I don't think there's a one clear line in the sand that we can draw. Uh, the system is more continuous, as I said. I mean, we have, we had extremes already. I mean, if you ask people from Luton in Canada, I mean, they say, well, the, 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 the line in the sand is, we, we passed it already. Okay. And they lost their house. They lost everything. If you, if you ask the same question to people in West Germany or Belgium last summer, they lost their house as well. So they passed, they passed it. So the time, the, the, the time depends on many, many things. And I can't, I don't think we can say, well, this is the level of PPM or the level of emission or the level of warming or the level of anything where things are okay. We, I mean, and, uh, well, as long as you're under this, this, the threshold and it's, I mean, if, well, when you're above the threshold, it just, it's, it's, it's just too late for everything. It's much more linear. It's much more continuous and it will depend on the region, the countries in many parts of the world. They will be fine. 
in for for quite some time like in in i mean well the arctic region again i mean I, i'm saying arctic region i just mentioned canada before so even for those ones we don't we know what is safe what is not safe anymore and in other parts of the region like of the world like australia i mean they will be you know it will be like super super hot and it, will, it won't be it will be bearable so there's no one single line there's like zillions of lines and we are just like passing all each of these lines one by one at the moment and it's more like a it's more like a wave it's like yeah it's like yeah it's like a long a wave it's like a tide it's like a slow tide and you have all of this little line on the on the shore in the sand and you're just like passing over each, each, each of these lines one by one and sometimes you retreat and you do come back over with like with large amplitude and you just carry on carry on so we have to remove when we have to reduce the amplitude of the tide or to stop the tide going up but i can't yeah i i don't think i can give you like a one single line of when things will go wrong and we have to start going on the street but i mean going back to work all kids and well your kids and my kids i guess yeah i mean it, it, it is worrying it is worrying for on on many level not just for the i mean the climate the direct climate impacts on food for example water but also i mean impact on i mean human population and migrations and i mean climate refugees and the redistribution of i mean of people across the world and where they will want to be and where they want to live and when you look in well western europe at the moment and the rise of i mean extreme right wing and populism based on fear of migrants and immigration and look what happened in the uk i mean they managed to i mean i mean organize and win a brexit vote essentially based on on these fears it is it's frightening you look at what's happening now at the at, at, at the at the border of europe in poland and Belarusia, with people like being i mean at the border and well dying as we speak it just i mean to me i mean this is like as frightening because i mean the climate crisis will not help it will probably amplify i mean this pressure against different parts of the world and the way we dealt with these pressures in the past is it doesn't look good because it's like i mean restricting and limiting and trying to protect ourselves from the others and it's it is frightening as well I, I get the impression um that there's a fair amount of repression going on um that and i'd be interested to see if this if this chimes with you at all within academia but I, I get the impression that there's a certain amount of repression going on in the sense that we talk about the impacts of climate change we talk about how far we've already gone but there's little appetite to emotionally engage with what it actually means everything still feels incredibly rational we still feel like we're talking a lot of numbers and and possibilities which is completely understandable but there seems to be this this missing element of this emotional engagement with what's going on i mean whenever i hear interviews or watch um, things on the news about climate change and so on no one's ever talking about the psychological impacts or the the emotional um impacts of of these these ideas and these possibilities and the context that we're in and i think part of that leads us to to inaction because the the strange thing about this whole situation is that the cause and effect seem so far removed from each other it's not immediate um, and it places us within our own sort of 
human psychology in this very strange position because we've evolved to respond to our environment in the in the now um, and we've got this strange combination therefore of this ability to reflect and to think ahead and to be able to empathize and then we've got the real lived world around us and the two seem to be slightly detached um, and I, I, I personally ascribe to a theory of change that says that you can't have social transformation without personal transformation because the two are linked. They're just, you know, Russian dolls, nested systems. Um, unless we have people that are engaging with these ideas on an emotional basis as well as a rational one, then we won't see any kind of cultural changes or cultural shifts that lead to action because our actions aren't the effect solely of our thoughts human behavior is governed not just by thinking but also through feeling and uh, our, our bodies our emotions our thoughts and our behaviors are all interlinked um, and i think it's it's remiss of us to purely live in the rational element um, and again maybe that's a, another symptom of our culture um, that perhaps there's more room there for us to engage our humanity in, in what's going on in order to make better sense of it, which in turn might help us to change the way we, we see it and the way that we interact with it. What, what do you think about that? No, I, fu I fully agree. I mean, I, mean I, I, was, I was shocked. I mean, although not, not, not totally surprised, I was shocked to, I mean, to, to, to watch. I mean, there, there was this, this, uh, this lady from Germany uh, when there was a flood last summer. And she was interviewed on the radio and it went like, I mean, semi-viral because essentially she was saying that, I mean, she, she was like in her maybe like, I mean, 60s, 70s. And she said that, I mean, she never imagined in her life, I mean, the climate change would actually be affecting her in her lifetime. And for her, climate change was something for the future and for different countries, not Western Europe and Germany, because, I mean, there should be protected from climate change for some irrational assumption that she made that, I mean, she, that wasn't for her. And I, I fear this is still the case for many, many people in, in the world at the moment, at least in the developed countries, which is, yeah, it's not really an issue for us. We'll be fine. We'll be okay. It might be an issue in 50 years time in developed countries. So do I really need to change my habits and everything just right now is it going to make a difference for my life in, in the near future well probably not if you factor if you add on this the fact that the also kind of like climate denial action being there's no point me doing it if china doesn't do it or india doesn't do it or whatever or x or y doesn't do it so as long as not everyone does it. There's no point doing it. So I shouldn't start. So I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to do anything because it's pointless. Because if I'm the only one doing it, it's, 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 it won't make a difference. So when you add all of these together, there's lots of reluctance for countries to change. And for, from, well, maybe not from the country, but from the, from the population. And you can see it. I mean, it's, I mean, environment is a concern for all of us. We always mention environment as one of the big concerns with, I mean, full employment, NHS, so it's, it's one of the top three always. When it comes to voting and deciding which party you support, no one is there to support the Green. And they've been, I mean, getting 10, 15% of the voters for the last 30 years. 
in everywhere, in at least in Europe, pretty much in every country in Europe, they do 10%, 15%. You would say, well, now with, with what we know about climate change, they should be the leaders in all of these countries. Still, they're not the leaders. I mean, the last, last, last example is the, the, the election in Germany. They came, well, third or fourth with 15% of the votes. So one person out of seven or eight vote for the green, knowing that they had like a massive flood like they never had in the past, like three months before, didn't change anything. So people at the end of the day say, well, yeah, okay, but they have like other priorities. And I can, I can understand that. I can understand that. I mean, your priorities at the end of the day will be employment, will be, I mean, health system, will be immigrants, will be, I don't know. And then environments, you'll say, yeah, yeah, sure, but it's not the, it's not the top priority. And it's, it's hard to change. So to me, going back to your question, I don't think we have, we, we can afford to wait for the entire world population to realize that this is the most urgent uh, threat in the world. You have to have political leaders who take the lead. And, and companies as well, not just government, governments and companies investing massively in decarbonization and making it harder to use CO2 and to burn CO2 and may, may, making it easier not to do it with, as we discussed, many, many different, I mean, ways, I mean, changing the system, I mean, taxing and, not, and subsidizing all of these together for the people that they will just do it because it's happening and not just because they feel they have to do it. Of course, they must adhere, they must adhere and they must follow. But if it's, if it's more is painless, they will do it. We will do it. I mean, you will buy like an electric car if it doesn't cost more than like a normal car. And if you can drive the same distance and do the same as you used to do, and you will take like public transport if they are free and running on, I mean, biogas or electricity. Yeah. And you won't fly if you can take a train to go some in some other places and if it's the same price and you have like an eating pump and like no, no, no boiler. It's, yeah. And the, the same will happen in many, many countries in the world. People will do it if they have the means and they can do it with some cost which is affordable. It will happen. But I don't think you will you we should wait for the world population to realize that it has to happen now. Because as you said, we are still too distant from the impact. And when when the impact will be there it will be too late. So what we need then is leadership and vision. Strong leadership and vision. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, as, as I said, not just governments. I mean, government, of course, because they are, they are the one they can put the subsidies in place and the tax system in place and to protect, I mean, I mean, the economies at the same time and to make sure there's no, I mean, like the EU proposing to have like a carbon tax for, I mean, import and products coming into the EU. I think it's a fantastic idea. I mean, either you produce something in the EU with a low tax, uh, with a low carbon footprint, or you import it, but if you import it, if it's coming from a country where there's like a larger carbon footprint, well, then they have to pay the tax and they will be taxed. And will be, this will help either to keep the, the economy growing locally in, within Europe with a low carbon footprint, or it will help make the transformation 
outside of Europe because they will have to make transformation to become competitive if they want to attack the, the EU market. So these, sort of things, they, they, these things have to happen as soon as possible to kind of like change, try to reverse the balance and move to like a low fossil or no, non-fossil, I mean, production mode. So there's a, there's a real challenge here then for, for business owners, business leaders to work on their vision, work on their, their leadership and their strategy and come up with new ways of doing things that help us to decarbonize our economy. Mm, yeah, yeah, and the existing business might be the best. I mean, the best one, and the, 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 the there might be like in the best place to do it. I mean, there's. A, I mean, again, you go back to the revolution kind of thing. I mean, I'm I'm not convinced. I mean, I mean, we have like massive economies and massive business. They just need to. I mean, well, I mean, I'm saying I'm saying just. I mean, it's, it's not simple, but they have to reorganize, reorganize them. And I mean, big fossil fuel companies like BP and Shell. I mean, they could become in 20 years the big. I mean, green energy companies. Why not? I, I have no problem with that. I have no problem with that. As long as they provide, I mean, the energy people need, if it's green, and it doesn't have to be like a completely new company to start from scratch. I mean, we've, we've seen in the UK when you try to, I mean, give contracts to companies starting from scratch, it doesn't work, work well. Sometimes, I mean, the existing company with like long standing uh, experience in business and networks and Infrastructure, infrastructure well, in would place. Be different, but yeah, it would be different. But they, they, you can, they, they it's have, not a standing yeah. start. Yeah, exactly. There's something to build on. So, okay, so we need businesses and business leaders with better vision, the clear leadership, and coming back to what I said earlier, um, is is one frame of looking at this or one approach to say how do we make the greening of capitalism profitable? If we can reorient business um, so that we, we utilize existing capitalist structures, but instead of just going all out on a linear extractive model, trying to draw out as much profit at the expense of everything else, if we were as business owners ourselves to, to regulate ourselves so that we were oriented towards people and planet as well as profit, and we did that in such a way that we had strong businesses, we served people, we made good products and services and made a decent living out of it, that there's potentially a different vision here, a different vision of the economy, a different vision of business that doesn't necessarily have to be this hair share environmentalism, that we could actually innovate our way um, to, a, to a different economy, which is a much yeah. more positive outlook. No, I agree. I agree. I fully agree. I mean, I mean, uh, uh, there's always a bit of risk of, I mean, greenwashing and pretending to be green and not to be fully green. Of course, I mean, they have to, I mean, they have to be, you, we need systems to check and make sure that uh, this is, this, these things are happening. I mean, when I, I was, I was, yeah, I was again shocked when I was in Glasgow. I mean, every single ad on, on the street was about, I mean, some green, whatever things being done by these big companies, McDonald's, I mean, using, I mean, I mean, I mean, oil and fry, fry oil to fuel the lorries or something. And you're feeling, well, really? And is it going to make a difference? So, I mean, yeah, big companies have to, I mean, re, re, redirect, uh, if, if you wish, but it has to be real. And it's, it's not just to be pretending to do it and carry on in, in, as usual, which is potentially like that, well, temptation at the moment. But yeah, yeah. But otherwise, yeah, I fully agree. 
greater scrutiny and also greater education yeah. in a sense so that people are more critically aware and they don't fall for greenwashing. Yes. That's yeah, a, yeah, another yeah, area. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, I'm mindful of taking up too much of your time and I just want to say thank you so, so much for a really engaging and interesting conversation. Keep doing what you're doing. Um, yeah, yeah, you too. <laughs> best of luck. And yeah, thank you again for your time. So a huge thank you to Pierre for his time and a huge thanks to you too for listening. If you'd like to get involved in using business as a force for good and you want to find out more about how to get started, please head over to thepathfinders.co uh, where you can find our online training, access a free guide on how to design a regenerative business and also access our private members group. As always, thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review as it really helps us to find new listeners and we love hearing what you have to say. But for now, thanks again for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.